Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues hold their first COVID-19 Weekly Convo live Facebook event to discuss all things COVID-19 related. this week I feel like mine changes every day I don't even have coherent thoughts right now <laughs> I kind of feel like the, the squirrel you know where it's like one minute <laughs> I'm thinking about one thing and then it just it just keeps expanding and chaining out yeah what's very clear to me is that I always thought I was going to do all these things around the house if I just had more time and that's not happening and also I don't actually have more time <laughs> yeah no yeah yeah that's what I've I been think- feeling like recently like I thought I was gonna have so much time in isolation. <laughs> I have less time than usual. Everything takes longer and is more complicated. Yes, indeed. And because, well, companies still expect you to work, right? So, yeah. Mm. But we're lucky though. We're, we're lucky, yeah. <laughs> I'm, figuring, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling very lucky yes, right now. Indeed. indeed, I mean, I'm you know seeing the kind of, you know, um, expressions of distress all across mm-hmm. Gainesville right now on the local boards, you know, restaurants mm-hmm. are desperate to you know, about inventory yeah. um, and people losing their jobs. So it's, yeah. it's yeah. tough out there. I keep thinking about graduate students who are finishing PhDs right now and about to go on the job market or on the job market. It's just the job market is so brutal already. It's mm-hmm. and, small- and the number of searches Although, that you've heard canceling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and small institutions cutting budgets. Yeah. Um, We can't talk about that around me right now. I can't (laughs) sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. It's scary. San Francisco Institute, uh, you know, losing its, basically closing down, apparently. Mm -hmm. What did you say was the Moody Institute? Uh, The San Francisco uh, Art Institute. It's one of the oldest, um, like, I guess, art schools on the West Coast. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Small liberal art schools are just going to disappear through this, I think. Um, no. I, I mean, not all of them, but I think any that were already struggling and wondering how to keep going for the next few years. I mean, this, like, I don't know. I, I don't know a whole lot about like university finance, but like my gut is like, if they don't have a hundred million in their endowment, like I think, I just think they're not but then people are saying they can't even access their endowments right now because most of that's in the stocks and with the stock market crashing. Yeah, this is not the time to pull money out of your endowment. You know, you're hoping right. to cover. But if you rely on the income from those endowments for for so many things, right. um, that income is going to go down in the next quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Nothing's made me more happy that I don't know how to invest in the stock market. <laughs> So, um, sadly safe there, I guess. One small potential positive for us in higher education is that oftentimes people do pursue more education in economic downturns. That's that true. is true. That so, is true. And that, I've heard I that there's many that's something people... to be happy about, but it's. Well, I was wondering yeah. that too. I was seeing um, that people are adding another degree on right now because mm -hmm. they don't know how to go into the workforce. I think one of the things that everyone is trying to figure out right now is um, for colleges that have dorms and for a lot of the um, a lot of the people who manage housing around universities, people are having to leave. They're having to go home and they've paid yeah. rent and with the expectation of paying more rent. They're all under contract. <laughs> On the one hand, that rent should certainly be refunded and forgiven going forward but on the other hand those places are many of those those places rely on that <laughs> income right. uh, so there's no real easy solution to it yeah it's just gonna oh <laughs> <laughs> <Lost area. laughs> yeah how has it been for you in, in florida Pam? Uh, well, I mean, specifically, hi, hi. <laughs> um, it's been, it's been a bit crazy here because our governor isn't actually making, he's not pulling the trigger and really clearing. Mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. So locally, Alachua County has made what I think is the right decision and asking people to shelter in place, you know, in practice, it's all a bit fuzzy. It's all kind of unfolding as we go, but you know, um, the beaches down south are still full of people and lots of places are still open. And Florida is right now a hot spot, which mm -hmm. means we're going to start to see a lot more, first of all, and we'll start to see the serious mortality. And we're, you know, an older population. So yeah. it's not great. Um, but we are we are hoping that our governor will, you know, that his position will evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, welcome. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Carrie, do you want us to each introduce ourselves? It's a great oh, idea. That, that might great be good. Idea. Yeah. Okay, I can start. Um, so <laughs> I'm Jen McClure. I'm an assistant professor at Kent State University. I study Victorian literature and as well as medical humanities. So um, I think Carrie and I met talking about uh, disease in Bleak House. And now just this week, that article that we were talking about just has just come out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very accidentally very um, time relevant. <laughs> or not on purpose, as, yeah. as we all know with the academic publishing timeline. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll go. Uh, my name is Leandra Hernandez. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Utah Valley University, which is just south of Salt Lake City. And uh, my research interests focus mostly on um, representations of health in the media, in the news. I focus a lot on media ethics approaches to health. And Kari and I went to undergrad together. So the really cool thing is that um, Kari and I love to tell everyone that when we were an undergrad, we were acquaintances, but have gotten a lot closer as we've gotten older over our bond of all things, uh, spooky and morbid. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'm Pamela Gilbert, and I'm a professor of English at the University of Florida, um, and I regularly teach a literature and medicine course. Um, I do a lot of history of the body and some history of public health in Victorian Britain. So I have a couple of books on the cholera epidemics of 19th century and how they shaped public health and how also various constituencies um, responded to those epidemics at the time and really shaped a discourse of what public health was supposed to be. Um, this was of course before germ theory, back when people still thought that miasma caused disease. And so really um, a lot of not only modern public health policy, but modern sewerage, the city as we understand it has kind of came out of that period. This is Andy. Um, she and I met doing, um, we were on a panel together on Ash Wednesday that a church did. They wanted to do a death panel and Andy and I met there. Um, do you want to tell a little bit about your job and whatever you're willing or can share? I'd love to hear what hospitals look like right now. I know obviously most of us don't go to a hospital daily. And now it's like, you want to stay away at all costs, but I just, I feel like it must be total chaos. Yeah. Um, so what I, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm working from home. Um, everyone who isn't providing uh, direct patient care as a primary provider is staying home. That's how things wow. are. Um, so consultants, medical consultants of every kind um, are working from home and doing, connecting with patients uh, with, their iPhones, iPads, uh, chaplains, social workers, infectious disease. Um, wow. Uh, anyone who's not doing procedures or needs to, anyone who doesn't need to lay hands on the patient um, to provide a diagnosis um, is working from home, which is really unusual for folks. And mm -hmm. um, so mixture of people who are, um, totally overwhelmed in their work uh, and hours and volume. And there's and then there are physicians who all of the clinics have been closed across the state um, to shunt providers and staff to from, um, from the clinics to the hospital acute care. Um, our emergency room is, um, it, everything has moved upstream to uh, the fairgrounds. So even in, uh, so Seattle has a, a hospital that they're kind of a, a triage hospital on a soccer field um, that they're using. Um, we're using our fairgrounds in Spokane and both hospitals, uh, both hospital systems in town, we have two systems, um, five hospitals and um, we've been, our emergency rooms have been working together to um, screen people um, at the fairgrounds uh, before ever going to the hospital. Are you able to screen them effectively? Is it just temperature screening or are you actually able to test? Nope, we're able to test, yeah. So that's one of the things that's changed dramatically in the last week. This week's testing is much better than last week's testing. Um, and mm. testing was uh, was causing a lot of moral distress. Um, just not being able to test and not having access to the test. We um, There was a, a point when there were multiple hospital labs uh, university labs that were trying to come up with their own test in the absence of an available test. Um, and um, it was being funded by, at least folks in Washington were being funded by the Gates Foundation uh, to work on that. Um, and- the turnaround uh, time? I'm sorry, Andy, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What's the turnaround time on tests? So good question. Uh, last I 
So I know that there's one that they're working on that's a that's um, that's within about a four hour turnaround or quicker. Um, right now, what I'm hearing is that it's a 24 hour turnaround. Uh, three weeks ago, it was it was three to four days. It was three to four days from the lab receiving it, and it was a mail away lab. So it was really taking five to seven days. Um, so one of the things that um, yeah, so gosh, hospital our Westside hospitals are um, are layering their hospital floors. So one floor is COVID positive, one floor COVID negative, one floor COVID rule out. Or the orders I think are different than that. Um, trying to keep staff um, in exposed, uh, potentially exposed and unexposed. Mm -hmm. um, because the reality is, is that with the um, there's been a lot of talk about the just the how how ventilators will be um, will be allocated from the national strategic national stockpile, and the right. reality is that the Department of Health is saying, "Gosh, if you don't have staff and you don't have PPE to run the ventilators, we're not going to we're not going to distribute this to the hospital." Which I think is probably I mean disproportionate. Um, and Holy it, heck! So what we might see is that it's not actually the ventilator shortage that cause or the ICU bed shortage that causes us to tip over into crisis standards of care that might actually be staff and PPE. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not anything anyone uh, expected. Um, right. It has it certainly hadn't been what I would have thought about until you sent me some of that literature for the, the meeting tomorrow. I was thinking ICU beds and ventilators, not staff and then and then just the way that you came in and said that they've got all of the doctors that don't need to be there working from home like that feels like a movie where we have to like almost triage protect the doctors that we're gonna need oh my god it's the ugh. well no, it, is, it keeps yeah. it keeps patients who are not urgently in need away from clinics and hospitals that are becoming hotspots really because people yeah. really sick are going there. They yeah. canceled all um, non-essential procedures and care days ago here in Gainesville. Right. Yeah, I was, um, I mean, this is of course a minor need, but it was just showing me like how deep this is running right now. I was kind of looking into getting some physical therapy for like a little back problem. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you. You can't. I mean, there's no. You can do a phone appointment, but you know you can't get a PT eval via phone. That's effective, and of course that doesn't you know really matter. And my life is fine, but like it just showed me how not normal we're operating right now. And but but I think that's good that everybody's taking it that seriously to even shut down most doctors' offices and really focus on. Yeah. So I'm seeing a, in the uh, public chat. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of questions. Yeah, Kristen Soria is one of our ethics uh, champions at uh, Sacred Heart Holy Family. And she's the uh, the nurse coordinator uh, for stroke care. And she's saying um, that on the ground, ha having a lot of issues with getting test results, we've been waiting eight days now. Holy cow, Kristen, wow. Um, no, I'm just responding to that. Um, just, um. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing informally from people that test results, we're still not testing everyone here and um, test results are taking a lot of time 
Um, we had, you know, the situation here was we were a university of 50,000 students. Um, we're in a small town. It's a university town. It's sort of a classic university town. Um, and so people came back for one day after our spring break, which was fairly early. So they brought the students back for one day and, you know, it was obviously an evolving situation. People were making the best decisions that they could. And that night they said, okay, you need to prepare to go online. But already a lot of people had come back from vacation and probably would have anyway. They would have come back to get their stuff from their dorms and whatnot anyway. But that has made little Gainesville and Alachua County a hot spot in the way that we're not seeing elsewhere in Florida except for major cities. Mm, right. Uh, Andy, can I let you take this question about splitting ventilators? I certainly don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I don't either. But I've seen, um, I'm on a couple of Facebook um, uh, forums with other physicians, specifically palliative care physicians. And then um, we've been trying to connect with uh, our critical care providers as much as possible just to talk about, talk through some of the innovations that are coming out of the desperation. Um, and so I guess my my biggest question about uh, splitting ventilators, I think it's I think it's a good attempt and a good idea um, and with an attempt to try to decrease the number of staff that we need. Um, I think a much more pressing thing is talking about what we won't be doing. Um, I'm so for instance, uh, two full-time nurses can run uh, can can see four patients on a ventilator. Um, it's not clear that splitting the ventilators will expand that to eight patients on a ventilator. It's also not clear that we even have eight ventilators. Um, I mean, Cuomo's, at least from what I saw from Cuomo and from which aligns with our predictive modeling um, that I'm seeing, is, he's saying, gosh, we, they received 400 ventilators uh, we need 30,000. And so I think a lot of people are doing a lot of things to try to um, to try to avoid having to make difficult decisions about who's going to be on the ventilator and who's not with the scarce allocation of resources. But when, there's no way around it. I think we're going to be there. Um, and the worry that I have about splitting ventilators is that now, instead of assigning a ventilator to one person who can depend on benefiting from that, You've now said that two people are going to get less than uh, less than what is ideal, and and the reality is is that the rate of, I mean the the death rate, the mortality rate with people who are so sick that they have to be on a ventilator um, is upwards of eighty percent, uh, even with younger people. Um, I mean, some of the younger people are the people that were being seen being able to be liberated from the ventilator. Um, but I'm 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 worried that splitting the ventilators will simply. Um, hasten. It's in case in the inevitable. That's what I'm worried about. I'm also worried about um, our caregivers and physicians talking about using ECMO or ECLS during this time. That's one of our most resource and staff intensive uh, interventions. And it's only for patients where the ventilator has failed. And um, I'm worried that, I mean, for instance, um, the amount of nursing staff that it would take to care for one patient on a on ACL 
in this routine standard of care, the ability to care for four patients. And we've just decided that we've, we're gonna put that resource into that one patient. And the reality is, is that we're shifting from, in, in a pandemic and in crisis standards of care, we're shifting away from autonomy and individual decision-making towards public health decision-making and care for the common good. And, and I, I think that there's a lot of uh, attempts to try to get away from that, to say, oh, that'll never happen. Um, and I think we need to instead lean into that and say, how are we going to do that? Mm. And I'm, I'm really curious, um, what can we, I mean, gosh, we what can we learn from Victorian times, from pandemics, before we had ventilators? Mm. Uh, how were we with one another in community? How can we learn from those those things? Uh, that's, that's your expertise. Well, I was I was going to just add to that, that like one thing I've been um, saying on a few podcasts this week is just that I, I think that in the developed world, we're not used to having we're so privileged to not have to believe that that will ever affect us, like a scarcity of resources. I mean, to our downfall, I think we've literally right, like killed the planet because we don't believe that we should have to ever deal with the scarcity of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that people like us in this chat probably think about that more frequently than most people because it's part of our job. Yeah. And even I really can't get my head around that. Mm -hmm. I've never had to in my real life, you know? So I can only imagine how much your, your average person is not prepared to accept that this could be our reality. Well, I saw I saw an article today um, exploring the possibility of blanket DNRs for um, all COVID patients, and obviously that's something that's in you know people are discussing, and that's not necessarily going to happen. But um, but Leandra, you work on ethics. Um, what do you what do you think about that? Oh, so I've I've had so many thoughts over the last several weeks because currently I'm teaching um, one introduction to health communication class and then one advanced health communication class um, where there's so much uncertainty, information overload, misinformation and just bombardment of, of, of everything going on that, um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with students and family members, classmates and colleagues where we're just trying to figure out how to make sense of everything at a very base level, right? Particularly for um, those of us who are living through this type of pandemic for the first time. Um, so for example, when I, a few years ago when the Zika virus really hit, um, my first book, which I published with my colleague, Sarah Upton, focused a lot on the way in which the Zika virus chained out in public and international media discourses, both in the US and in Latin America. And what I think was really interesting is back then, um, from a media ethics perspective, the Zika virus was always framed by major, more dominant news outlets as being a problem that originated somewhere else and that impacted other countries, right? Um, particularly in a Gillian Barr's case and also in a um, reproductive case. Now, what I'm thinking about with the coronavirus, um, of course, with all of the racism accompanying it being the Chinese flu, the Chinese disease, and all of the xenophobia that's chaining out there. Um, I'm also trying to make sense of in my own head on a constant basis, how we can go back to the mandate of shifting from like our large American individualist approach to healthcare, personal healthcare, right? And personal autonomy, 
with the idea that we just need to stay home, right? So we're seeing all of these hashtags going out on social media. Like, I love the Spanish ones, right? Quédate en casa, quédense en casa, just please stay home. And um, in Salt Lake, for example, I'm on the communication committee for our Salt Lake Climbers Alliance organization. Mm -hmm. And seeing the conversations and the discourses play out here about my personal rights and my personal autonomy to go to the crags and climb as I please because I'm young and the coronavirus won't impact me. Like as a health communication person, I've been trying to make sense of that in tandem with like trying to figure out how communities and organizations can actually create communication messages that get to the target audience and stress the importance of the social collective good, right? The fact that we could be carriers, the fact that it doesn't matter if you're going outside, like all of the efforts that are trying to dispel a lot of the myths about the virus and how it's transmitted and um, who it impacts. It's just, I think at the end of the day, the too long didn't read version is, um, I think the breakdown between the individual approach to autonomy and health and the larger social collective good, I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that's going to impact um, whether or not the curve can actually be flattened and we can get people to just realize how this impacts all of us collectively. Yeah, it's it's what I'm seeing on message boards and so on is this the real sort of disconnect between, well, I don't think I'm at risk or um, mm -hmm. you know, I still have the right to do what I what I need to do. And paranoia on both sides, paranoia right. on the left, that this is going to be a kind of moment for, um, you know, for the government to do things that that we don't think are necessary or good. And paranoia on the right that also <laughs> they, they don't think are necessary or good. I mean, it's the same paranoia. It's focused on different objects. Um, but there is still a discourse around this being a hoax, around it being exaggerated, and that discourse seems to be stronger on the right. And I think in part that's because the messaging was so um, mixed, Yeah, let us say, okay. uh, for yeah. so long. I was gonna add, I mean, one thing that that brings up for me is like, I mean, essentially what has confounded our efforts epidemiologically in this is that we essentially have a healthy carrier situation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I was just having this conversation the other day with somebody who had uh, posted something about typhoid Mary. And I sort of, I, they probably were really annoyed with me because I posted like a novel on their Facebook page <laughs> about like, you know, you can't, this, the narrative that still persists 113 years later that she was just this evil person who didn't believe that she was spreading this disease, of course, elided some of the lived realities of her being an immigrant, of her needing to make her living. But I was like, isn't that, I mean, people are doing that right now. I mean, we don't want to believe that we could be spreading this disease because we feel fine, you know? And we still, so to say that somebody is monstrous for doing that, I mean, either we all are or she isn't, right? And mm -hmm. and the example I posed in this Facebook chat was like, is the server who works an extra shift because they know we're all about to go on lockdown and they have kids to feed, are they evil? I, I don't think it's that simple. And it was the same reality with, with Mary Mallon. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're you're operating in a hyper capitalist situation, right, where undoubtedly so you have individuals in service positions who 
I mean, I, I keep seeing that meme float around on Facebook where it says like, oh yeah, I like how the conversation is individuals in service positions should have X amount of wealth saved up, but then corporations when they need a bailout, it's like, oh yeah, you're good to go. Um, so like, for example, my dad in Houston has been involved in the restaurant industry for the last at least 40 years, if not longer. And I was having several conversations with him leading up to this in the last month or so about, you know, what's going to happen if um, the entire city of Houston gets a shutdown, what's going to happen with the restaurant, what's going to happen with the employees, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think part of the problem here, as we've all been mentioning so far, is the disconnect between the messages, right, and kind of the, the ethical impositions that end up getting put on individuals in these positions who have no other choice, right? Which is why I've been really heartened to see a lot of campaigns going around um, just at the Salt Lake level that say, you know, support local mom and pop shops, pick up delivery if you can, um, get food to go, et cetera, et cetera, because really the, this is who's getting hit the hardest here from the like industry service level position. Right. I'm seeing on the public chat, um, Kristen Soria, I think, is saying that the silver lining has been the community rallying around each other mm -hmm. at, at distance, um, <laughs> looking out for each other and, you know, that she's been in her home for 11 days, but her neighbors are calling and asking if she needs anything from the, from the store. And we are seeing more of that. There was a good story today about how um, Nextdoor, which is a neighborhood app, which is often a little bit combative and can, can be a little bit of a trash fire, um, has suddenly become a site of a lot more, um, you know, actual community, mm -hmm. uh, which is what it aimed to be. And people are starting to actually turn to that idea of community as they're restricted to a smaller space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I yeah. think, yeah, maybe that's one of the connections it's something I've certainly been thinking about in terms of Victorian literature and some of your work, Pamela. Um, you've written a lot about this, but you know, I think we see during these outbreaks in the Victorian period, we get a lot of the kind of individualizing approach, like what you need to do to be a good citizen um, is sort of maintain the boundaries of your body, police yourself, kind of keep, you know, put up borders, keep yourself more, um, bounded and sealed off and um what I, I just keep thinking about how to like in the long term how do we negotiate the paradox of this situation where in order to create a healthy community we need to isolate ourselves you know in order to be socially responsible to our neighbors we need to we actually need to do a lot of that stuff like how do we socially distance and isolate without subscribing to um, ideas that I think are harmful uh, about bounded individuality, you know, and kind of how do we kind of maintain communal responsibility and, and the kind of ethic of community while we are physically all separated like this? Well, I'm gonna jump in real quick, just because this is my, like, this is the subject of my book that's coming out. I know. Um, I guess Pamela probably knows it's in her book series. Um, yeah, like this has been on my mind so much that what I notice in my book is moments of people like pushing back a little and saying that like, mm -hmm. you know, what is a beating heart worth if we don't have other people to share it with? I guess that's sort of a, a simplistic, maybe cheesy way to, to say it, but I mean, yeah, you know, we don't care about viruses because we care about viruses. We care about it because they will kill 
the people we love, right? And mm -hmm. I've kind of seen what I hope, and I hope enough of us can be loud enough about this so that when things are back to normal, we don't just let this kind of peter out. But mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a world that I think would really like us to believe that we can do everything at a distance. Mm -hmm. um, that's more efficient corporately, right? Um, isn't it Andrew Yang who is always talking about automation? Mm -hmm. um, and I think people are really seeing that like you can't replace face-to-face -face interactions. I've seen these beautiful moments of people coming together on Zoom. Like mm -hmm. Pamela, normally you and I only talk like once a year at conferences, like something <laughs> and and usually Leah and I are talking like in passing as we're running back and forth to classes. So yeah. there has been great things, but I also think people are seeing, I hope that like, I almost cried the other day when my daughter's preschool teacher was like reading her a story um, through a recorded yeah. YouTube video mm -hmm. in an empty classroom. And my baby kept being like, hi, but like mm -hmm. didn't understand why she couldn't say hi back. And I was just on a, sorry, I'm rambling, but I was just on a podcast yesterday with a comedian who, when I mentioned this was like, yeah, we've, you know, us in the live entertainment industry have been struggling to get people to come to live shows for mm -hmm. years as iPhone has taken over. And now everybody's kind of missing it. And so I'm hoping that enough of us in sort of the broader perspective of, um, uh, oops, Andy left. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry, I think she wanted to bring up something about the DNRs, but um, I'm hoping that enough of us can be um, loud enough about that, that people don't just go back to their iPhones. I mean, myself included. I don't do enough live things, but I'm hoping we're, we'll seek that out a little bit more now that we see when we're stripped of that ability, how much it, it does bring to our lives. Yeah. I, I would add that um, to, to Jen's question, that one of the things that's becoming really evident as we are stuck in our homes and relying on delivery people and supply chains that may be disrupted mm -hmm. are, is how much, you know, we think we go about our day and we are, you know, sovereign beings. I mean, some of us yeah. are, and we're, we do everything ourselves. But in fact, there is no one living in advanced society, probably in any society, that does not depend on the work of lots of other people. And in mm -hmm. an advanced society, a complex society, that work is often invisible. And so you just yeah. kind of don't know it's there and often it's not valued. And going back to Andrew Yang, who wants to, everybody should have a universal basic income, right? I mean, we look at the truck drivers who are still bringing us stuff, the delivery, mm -hmm. the people who are still cooking in kitchens and, and you know, for takeout, mm -hmm. all of those people who maybe normally we don't think about them much and now suddenly yeah. they're looming enormously large and mm -hmm. of course our frontline doctors and nurses but also the the janitors who clean hospital floors god bless them because they're keeping us all from dying right now yeah. like, i have thought about this just last night that occurred to me and i'm so glad you brought this up because i was thinking how we define essential labor mm -hmm. and i was like Right now, it's the people in the factories making the N95 masks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And those like, are the people yeah. that are the most, I think, left out of equations in a lot of like workers' equity and and job security and health insurance, right? But now society depends on them, and it 
It in fact already did. We're just now seeing it. Yeah, and we that. a lot of those people are actually laboring in places like Wuhan, yeah. <laughs> because that's where a lot of our equipment or, or components comes from, and yeah. that's one of the reasons there have been disruptions. And it it raises really significant implications too about the racial ethnic disparities at play as well, particularly when you think about. Um, the racial ethnic makeups and populations of the individuals, the actual bodies doing the labor, right? Like I've been seeing um, several articles going around, really interesting, really timely and poignant that focus on how like, particularly in the delivery positions, a lot of black and brown bodies are at stake because those are the ones that make up a large um, segment of that group. And you know, another thing that I focus on that Kari and I talk about this all the time, like the violence at the border and the bodies at the border, like we're not even, I haven't seen as much conversation as I would like on um, the farmers and the laborers and everyone else are still working incredibly hard to make sure that we're still getting the produce that we can eat. But it's like those, those bodies and that labor and that experience isn't even really part of the larger conversation. Right. And again, just the sort of American privilege. And I think we can also say, as Jen, I love the way you said this. I wish I had had it when I was writing my book about <laughs> individualism, that we think we just kind of live magically. But we've never had to live in a space where we couldn't get food, much less much less even one item, right? Like I've never even lived through a life where like I couldn't get oranges, like yeah. occasionally happened in the Victorian era, you know? And, <laughs> and so we don't, we're so, so privileged. And I think to a fault of not having to think of the people whose bodies labor and produce those things for us. Yeah. yeah. This is making me think of, I mean, just the larger issue of dependency and how mm. we're so uncomfortable, I think, especially as Americans with, the idea of dependency, um, being dependent on other people. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great disability studies work on this idea, but I think, you know, we are realizing part of maybe we could call it a silver lining of this is that we're having to acknowledge what it means to be part of a community and to be dependent on other people. And hopefully, I mean, one, I hope that one of the upshots of this is that we start to think about the value of human life outside of use value. You know, mm -hmm. like if there's, that would be one thing that I would really be, if we could, if we have happened to think about that, that would be great to think about how do we, how do we theorize the value of human life or how do we articulate the value of human life without relying on a rubric of use value, you know, mm -hmm. the value of, the life of the 84 year old retired person who is not working. Um, My heart, Jen, I love that. Can you just yeah. say that that last part again? I want to remember it forever. <laughs> I don't know what I said. Uh, <laughs> I it's like uh, lack of use value. How do we, value how do we yeah, how do we, how do we articulate or how do we argue for the value of human lives without depending on a rubric of use value. Mm. Yeah, and see, so like Amanda, hey Amanda, um, Amanda typed in the chat box, US American individualism and embodied establishment capitalism, right? Like, can we even think about those two paradigms in conversation with each other, right? When in a capitalist mm -hmm. society, bodies are expendable, profits are the bottom line, but then, you know, we have this need that Jen focused on so beautifully that talks about everyone's need and everyone's life being valuable, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, 
it also um, reminds me of Laura's question as well. Like, does it mean that we need to learn how to live with this new virus? What I've seen some people calling on Facebook as the new normal and then other people pushing back saying like, we shouldn't romanticize this as normal because it's a pandemic and people are yeah. dying. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see what y'all's thoughts are on that, right? Like what does it even mean to, to live with this virus for the unforeseeable future? as it's impacting the service industries, the economy, I mean, our own experiences in academia and with everything else, like how do we make sense of this? Hmm. Well, I'm hoping that one thing that we can um, help people to think about is the way that, and, and I think you're all talking about this in different ways, the way that, you know, let us call it capitalism, depends in part, and the political sector, which is an overlapping but, but not entirely identical sphere, on a kind of ideological mystification, right? Yeah. We talk about, oh, the nation should be self-sufficient and it should close its borders and, you know, yeah. and these foreign workers are coming here. And, you know, if there's, you know, if there's nobody in the fields to pick your radishes, you ain't getting radishes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Leah, you and yeah. me just did the same thing. <laughs> and if your medical equipment is manufactured in China, maybe this is not the time to introduce legislation blaming China for everything when everyone is struggling with the same overwhelming disaster and we need to co cooperate more than we ever have before. Um, so, you know, Possibly people are going to see that in sharper relief as as things don't work as well as they've been. And again, when things are working well, most of the labor is in, is invisible. That labor is becoming visible mm -hmm. and continue to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. maybe this is getting a little literary studies here, but I think, you know, maybe the vaccine is a good metaphor to think about how to live with a virus rather than like, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, when we when we take vaccines, we incorporate some of what is threatening into our bodies, right? And by doing that in a controlled way, we're able to um, live with it. <laughs> you know, to some I don't think that's too lit studies at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, either one of my advisors, Rajni Sudan, that's how she taught vaccines is. Yeah. You're taking a little bit of the risky foreign other mm -hmm. into the body to preserve a greater life. Okay. And I, I do want to just um, be really clear because we just had an article um, published in the, I, I think it was the Federalist. It got banned from Twitter immediately uh, that suggested that we should oh, yeah. encourage people to catch the coronavirus yeah, in a controlled way and thus build immunity. That's oh, I've seen that going around, but I didn't yeah. know what it was from. I've Important to clarify that I do not mean that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I and I know that you don't, but I, I don't know who might see this later. I really. Oh. I'm thinking of the the idea of the new normal. You know that yeah. at some point you can't. There's we may have passed the point of total containment, right? So we have to think about how do we, you know, how do we adjust? How do we find ways to work with what's going on now? Right. Um, and flattening the curve is, is I think, part of that adjustment, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because it's our virus now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. an American virus when Americans have it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap this up because I think if I let us talk too long, then too many of y'all will feel like it's too exhausting to do again. So, um, <laughs> I hope we'll have Andy back to address that issue around the DNRs yeah. that she had really important information for us and we, we didn't let her talk. I know, <laughs> I know. I got too excited about community and bounded individualism. I feel like it's my fault. Um, I would love any and all of you guys that are able to do this same time next week. Don't feel obligated, but I would love to just keep doing this. I need to talk it out with people. So yeah. Thanks for great. organizing this, Carrie. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. See you all. See you next week. Talk to you. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.